If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. TikTok is now under a joint Canadian privacy investigation. Oh, great. I liked it way better when the Prime Minister pretended China was his special imaginary friend. Here's Scott Thompson. I think they still are. He's just trying to make it look elsewise. Yeah, he's trying to make it. Yeah. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. Thanks for joining us. And before we get into the hot and heavy of of the politics of the day, and, and, you know, it is a Friday, right? Um, I want to bring your attention to something that might just ease a bit of the stress. How about skipping rope? Remember Rocky? Or some pretty wild stuff going on with the Ontario Rope Skipping uh, Organization. This weekend, there will be a local jump rope competition taking place at Salt Fleet High School. What the heck does all of this mean? Let's bring in Megan Booth, senior athlete, the Ontario Rope Skipping Organization, and with us now. Megan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. So first of all, um, I don't know where you want to start, but what is the Ontario Rope Skipping Organization? What is this all about? So the Ontario Rope Skipping Association is um, a, an association that brings athletes from all across Ontario together, and they organize workshops and competitions. They organize our open competition, which is taking place this weekend, our provincials, which is um, taking place in a few months, and they help bring us to nationals, and from there, sometimes we go to worlds. Okay, so what is involved in this competition? What are these? What, what does this competition look like? So on the Saturday, we um, it's a te- that's the team events day, and in the morning we do speed events, so like as fast as you can go in a relay with your teammates, and in the afternoon we do a lot of um, freestyle events with partners in groups of four. We do some double dutch events, and then on the Sunday. We do the same thing, but with individual events. So there is both team events and individual events, you know, where people are in and out of this. Um, if, for someone who's never seen it, how would you describe it? I think it's a really cool experience because a lot of people think that jump rope is just like skipping and doing like some crosses, but there's really like unlimited amount of um, skills and tricks that you can do with it because like with every every skill that you can do, there's an, something that you can add to it or something that you can change with it. And when you can put it all together in a r- routine, it looks really cool. See, when I'm thinking of, of, of skipping uh, rope, you're either it's like when we were kids way back when and kids doing it in the schoolyard or somebody who's training really heavy, boxing, that sort of thing. But this is obviously somewhere in between all of that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of more similar to... Um, um, it's kind of similar to dance, as there's like big routines and there's like lots yeah. of different skills and stuff. But we do do other training things like as fast as you can um, for certain periods of time, like 30 seconds, three minutes. And then we do double unders and triple unders and things like that. So talk about the athleticism that must be involved here, because uh, to do this for any length of time, you have to be in shape. Yeah. So we typically practice, the competitive 
members typically practice at least two times a week. Currently, we're practicing um, four and five times a week. So our practices usually start off with a warm-up, which we do like about five minutes of jumping straight and then stretches and everything. And then after that, we do um, speed and then our freestyles. So who does this ages? Uh, who takes place? So um, typically you can start around the age of five, like in a program, and you can, you can do it up until any age. Um, we have recreational programs and pre-competitive programs as well as the competitive. So usually we start in recreational and then um, from there you can move up to pre-competitive and competitive. Is it gender specific? Is it boys and girls? Is it just girls? Is it just boys? Is it, is, does it matter about gender? No, nothing matters about gender. A lot of people think that uh, only girls skip, and uh, that's really not true. We have, we have members in our uh, recreational and competitive programs that are um, men, and they do just as well, and they're just as good, and they do, they, anyone can really do it. So what are we going to see come uh, this weekend at Salt Fleet? Um, we're going to see there's about 150 athletes that are going to be competing there, and there's eight teams. So because this is just our open competition, it's open to anyone from Ontario. And mm-hmm. um, so there is pre-competitive members that can come to this competition, even though in uh, our next competition, Provincials, it will be more competitive members and people that are hoping to go to nationals. So uh, is this just for people participating? Uh, can spectators come? How do we find out more about this? Um, you can look on the Ontario Rope Skipping Organization. You can look on their um, social media. So if you look that up, you will be able to find information. Spectators can come and watch and sit in the stands. And um, uh, this competition is... You have to be registered as a member of Orso, but it's open to any athletes at any level, really. All right. And any advice for those willing to get into this? What sort of skill level do you need? Uh, Do you have to be a super athlete? Uh, How do you get started? So if you are a super athlete, you can definitely join. And if you have no experience whatsoever, you can also start. So if you have no experience You'll probably start in a recreational class, and um, you we have those like after after school times, like in the evenings on most days, and mm-hmm. we'll teach you how to uh, get started with a rope and just like actually start skipping, and then from there we'll build up your skill level from one to all the way as high as you can go, and then a lot of people also think that when once you're done your once you've accomplish all of your skills that's maybe written on paper then you're like oh i'm the best one here but really you can add things and change things and you can even make up skills that can also uh count for competitions and things wow this has come a long way from the playground megan booth with a senior athlete the ontario rope skipping organization competition uh this week uh this weekend at salt fleet high school the ontario rope skipping organization if you want to find out more megan good luck with this thanks so much
Thank you for having me. The Ontario government announced that they are providing more money to support the expansion and improvement of public transit services here in the Hammer. To talk more about this and all things Hamilton, Donna Skelly with us, MPP, Flamborough, Glambrook, and with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. So far, so good. So tell us about this money and transit and, and what it means for Hamilton. Well, the, the province recognizes that uh, there are tremendous pressures on municipalities right across Ontario. And when it comes to generating revenue from transit systems, we've seen a, a sharp decline since COVID. I, I was just looking at the city of Hamilton's numbers, and the most recent numbers I could find were the 2021 numbers. And, and it's still sitting less than half of what they were pre-COVID. So that means that, like other municipalities, they need uh, some help to ensure that the city is able to provide transit right across the province, uh, right across the city. We are going to be allocating over $12 million to the city to, to continue to invest in, in local transit. You know, you just mentioned watching city council. And one of the things I'm, I've been following closely is the, uh, the tax hike that they're considering. It's quite significant uh, whether they stick to that six point, I think it's sitting at 6.7% right now or not, is up to uh, council to determine. But if we don't bring in more businesses and generate more revenue through non-residential tax, then homeowners are really bearing uh, the brunt of uh, covering the cost of operating uh, services in the city of Hamilton. So, Recently, the, the premier visited Hamilton. It was the first time, actually, you may recall that he had a chance to meet uh, our new mayor since she left Queen's Park and was elected. And it was a good meeting. But he was here to talk about expansion of Bimbo, which is a bakery on the mountain. And they were uh, including a new line. Uh, create, they're going to be baking uh, tortillas. That means more people, more workers need transportation to get to their home. And that's one of the things that I think the city has to really tackle. We have to start providing efficient and reliable transit to our industrial parks, to the areas where we're seeing the residential, the non-residential tax base Hmm. increase to help alleviate the pressures on on residents across across the city. You bring up a, an interesting point, Donna, that I'm sure every city a- across the world I- is dealing with. And, you know, prior to COVID, it was transit, 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 build it, build it, build it, can't build it fast enough. We need to catch up, catch up, catch up. Then a global pandemic hits uh, three years ago now, when you think about it, and and habits and things have changed. And mm-hmm. it, it ha- so, and, and, and we know it's affected every industry, everything. So how has that, do we have to rethink transit, I guess, is, is what? I'm th- is what I'm saying. I mean, is it different now than it was before the pandemic? And why wouldn't it? Everything Absolutely. else is. Absolutely. You will see uh, brick-and-mortar operations such as, and I mentioned Bimbo, I don't mean to be picking on them, but let's look at my, my riding. We have the airport. You need people, bodies on the ground, bumps in the seats, in order to ensure that those types of businesses operate efficiently. So when they have an expansion in their employment numbers, uh, they will need proper transit service. On the other hand, you have a lot of businesses where employees are, are working from home either permanently or in a hybrid model, and they don't rely on public transit. So Go Service, uh, City of uh, Toronto, thank goodness. I mean, they've got their own issues, the TTC with violence, but 
other um, transit uh, operators are seeing a sharp decline because people are working more from home. They want to be home. They've figured it out. Technology is allowing people to work from home. There is increasing pressure to get people to go back to the office, but I don't think we're going to see the model that we saw pre-COVID. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's uh, You can't go through this for three years and, and come out the other end uh, the same. Uh, many Hamiltonians are thinking, LRT, which is, you know, supposed to start at any time. And, you know, and one of the advantages, I guess, of waiting so late or disadvantages, I don't know. But how do you see that changing that discussion or is it going? It's done. And I mean, you know, that's a little different than and certainly a lot more modern version of, of transit than than what we're typically used to. But do you see that being debated again? I don't. I do think there may be a bit of a, a sticker shot uh, when we see the actual price tag come in. It, it, I don't know where it sits right now, uh, but we all know that things have certainly increased. Um, yeah. uh, we are seeing the price of lumber, for example, has stabilized. It was outrageous right after mm-hmm. and through during COVID. The supply chain is correcting itself. So it may not be as bad perhaps as it would have been post-COVID. Immediately after uh, the COVID, um, uh, we started to open up, society started to open up. But sure, I think the cost is going to be increased. But at this point, it's still status quo. We're moving forward with it. Yeah. Uh, so in regard to transit and, and where it goes, because, I mean, we're seeing Hamilton explode in every corner. There's lots of housing being built. Look at the cranes downtown. It's great to see everything going. So how do you how do you fix transit, per se? Because in the end, what you'd want to say is, well, we should provide service everywhere to everyone. But that's not always the most efficient thing to do. You're talking about obviously getting um, uh, more transit working from you know, residential areas up to uh, the industrial areas and such on the mountain um do we have to rethink how we do this like the way the bus runs through a neighborhood at a certain time a certain do we have to rejig that and go where the demand is absolutely i really think that that's you know i think taxpayers would expect us to use these dollars efficiently and earmark them for where the demands are uh it doesn't mean that you can't provide some level of service to areas that uh uh, show a, a, a significant decline or have never really had a, a much of a demand for public transit. But when you see areas that, that need public transit, then we should be providing it. But there are all different kinds of models. I know in uh, up north, I, I shouldn't say really up north, when I talk about up north, it should be Kenora, but in the Barry area, they were using, um, taking advantage of an opportunity, a pilot project, working with Uber, Mm-hmm. So the Uber driver was that last mile, bringing people on a regular basis. If it was seven in the morning, going to a specific job site, they would pick them up in a van if there were only a handful of people, and they would be brought to um, a hub, a transit hub. And it, it made sense because instead of covering the cost of a driver and a, and a, a bus, you had a, a more... Right. Uh, cost-effective means of providing transportation to people in outlying areas. So there are different hybrid models that perhaps the city could look at. Uh, But I do believe that, you know, and I'm going to encourage them to look at providing proper bus service to areas where we're seeing significant growth in employment. If we want to help take pressure off of uh, the local municipal taxpayer, we have to provide 
uh, the services to these areas where we can see an increase in non-residential tax base. All right. Before I let you go, I have to ask you the burning question, Donna. Did you go to Doug Ford's daughter's uh, stag and doe? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Oh, how come? Come on. I was like a stag and doe. When was the last I I, I was at a stag and doe, and this is the truth, is when I worked in Four Colognes in Quebec. That's the SEKMF radio. So there you go. That was the last time. That was years ago. All right, we'll leave it at that. Donna Skelly with us, MPP for Flamborough, Glambrook. Donna, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Today marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine and this whole mess started. And uh, we are where we are today. Uh, Many said way back when uh, at the beginning of all of this that it would be over within a week. Uh, We remember U.S. President uh, Joe Biden saying offering um, uh, an escape route for President Zelensky said, nope, we're not throwing in any white flags. We're going to uh, stand up for our country and stand up. They have. Uh, and of course, uh, fortified with allies, uh, ammunition and, and military hardware and stuff, uh, and such, they have held Russia off for one year, but where does this go from here? How does this come to an end? Let's bring in Dr. Florian Gasner, associate professor of teaching at department of central Eastern and Northern European studies, university of British Columbia. And with us now, uh, Florian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So what are your thoughts one year in? Um, again, as I mentioned, this was all supposed to be over very quickly. Russia, uh, Putin explained it to, to his citizens as, you know, an operation uh, sort of thing. Uh, what are your thoughts one year out? It's a, it's a fascinating point in the war right now because it's a tremendous inflection point potentially. Uh, there has been talk about the Russian offensive commencing any time now, but experts point to the fact that the offensive has been going on for two weeks now and gains are to be measured in the hundreds of meters, if at all. And at the same time, this is a window of opportunity for the international community. If Ukraine comes out of the winter fully equipped and with the resources they need, this could be the moment where the tide aggressively and permanently turns. Um, and hindsight's twenty twenty. We can't predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, but theoretically, if 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 Russia was going to win this, would they have not done this in the first month? Would this not be over and done with? It's. Uh... It is unfathomable the blunders the Russian military made there because this whole goal of having the operation done in three days, they even, soldiers had their parade military uniforms with them there. And the mm. the Russians seem to have overestimated their own army. The West overestimated the Russian army. So at this point, it is not conceivable where Russia thinks that the end game is. They are definitely not going to take Kiev in this war. And for some reason, they are just happy to destroy lives and infrastructure, uh, which is inconceivable, simply. It appears all they have at this point is the threat of nuclear arms. Is that accurate? And that threat is a questionable threat at best, because um, the security community, so people significantly smarter than I, agree that a tactical nuclear weapon would not change the balance on the battlefield. 
And then all that's left is sending a nuclear a weapon into an urban area or into Western Ukraine. And that will not only incur an immense response from the Western community, but as much as China has been you know, wavering on how to position itself, the one thing China has made clear is that they will in no way tolerate the deployment of a nuclear weapon. So it is a threat, a threat that needs to be taken seriously, but it doesn't seem to be an acute danger. It's just they're throwing everything against the wall and see what, seeing what sticks. Uh, has Putin backed himself into a corner at this point? Like you said, if things don't materialize for them by the spring, uh, where does that leave them? This is... Like this is the one question that everybody is discussing with, discussing with an open end, because let's say even Ukraine manages to regain all the territory of its internationally accepted borders, Russia will still be there. So two years out, they would probably be back with a even bigger army. But then the question is, can Putin survive losing the war in this uh, tragic way, or will he? Uh, well, not tragic. Uh, Sorry, tragic was the wrong word here. In this spectacular fashion, um, or will he be forced out before? Or will he drag this war out so long that he is dead before it is even over? So we don't know. Hmm. It's a big question for everybody. Now China is talking about the need for peace talks, ceasefire, what have you. Why is this happening now? How significant is that? It is significant because it shows that China understands or at least publicly admits that it has a stake in this war. Like you just have to look at the Chinese economy. In the 2000s, Chinese economy posted over 10% growth per year. In the 2010s, it was over 6% growth per year. And this is what maintains the social peace in China. And China knew from the beginning they are dependent of an international economy working like clockwork. And they would have probably not bothered with the Russian war on Ukraine had it gone as Russia planned because it wouldn't have affected them. But now this is hurting the international economy. This is hurting them. And so they are trying to position themselves as a stronger partner in this entire ordeal. What's the relationship like between China and Russia? Sometimes they, they appear like they're ready to take on the rest of the world. Other times they're adversaries. Russia in the connection with China has always been, and people have underestimating this, but it has been the junior partner. China doesn't mind having Russia in its camp because it's a source of cheap uh, metals and of cheap energy. And right now they are benefiting from the sanctions because Russia has to sell their oil at below production and transportation costs to China. But China has other contracts, so this is not their main supply right now. But this is where China needs Russia. It's a marginal thing, but Russia, without the support of China and the international community, uh, would be dead lost in the water. And so they will do probably everything to accommodate uh, their Chinese partners. Dr. Florian Gassner with us, Associate Professor of Teaching, Department of Central, Eastern and Northern European Studies, University of British Columbia. Florian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we chatted here yesterday that uh, Ontario and uh, the Atlantic provinces had uh, inked a deal in principle with the federal government on health care. We're hearing Manitoba jumped on board today. Uh, Are these reforms? Are these Band-Aid solutions? Let's bring in an old friend who we talk to pretty much every day during the height of the global pandemic. Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert, is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Great to speak with you about something other than COVID. Of course. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, all right. On that being that being said, Ahmad, um, give us your thought, and then we'll spend 30 seconds on this and we'll move on. Three years. It's been three years since this all started. Your thoughts of where we are now since we've talked about it for so long. We're definitely in the post-pandemic phase now with many of our partners, including health system uh, providers, whether they're healthcare providers or policymakers, really looking into how to strengthen our health system, uh, both in terms of our shortage of healthcare staff, uh, but also in making sure that everybody in the country has access to care at the right time at the right place. All right. So during the height of all of this, we saw weak links in the healthcare system. Finally, a lot of this came to the attention, unfortunately, in, in traumatic ways uh, for the Canadian public. We all said that, you know, we were going to we we're going to work to fix this uh, when all of this mess is over. And, and certainly that's what they've been trying to do. The politicians have been trying to do for the last several months. Um, are you how do you feel about the changes that we've seen in the last week or two, the deals that have been signed? Because many are asking, are these actual reforms or are these band-aids? Well, I mean, the reform, the, the, whatever is being promised right now is trying to address a series of severe issues and challenges that our system has faced because of the recent COVID-19 pandemic. But also it is important to highlight, Scott, that COVID-19 just exposed already existing gaps, things around yeah. our shortage of nurses and other healthcare workers, the fact that there's a lack of family doctors for approximately 6.5 million Canadians, the fact that there's a huge backlog of surgical and diagnostic uh, access for people and inadequate access to quality elderly care. Those are key challenges that we're hoping that this increased funding will help to address. Uh, to be quite honest with you, without a substantial commitment by the government and everybody involved to make efforts to change the system overall, they will continue to be band-aids rather than a major reform. Uh, is reform possible, Ahmad? I mean, is it is it something that can happen, or are there just too many conflicting uh, organizations, bodies, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen here? Listen, with any commitment comes the desire to change things. So I'm optimistic that reform is not only uh, important, but actually crucial at this window of opportunity. We have a window of opportunity right now in Canada to really it, reform our system to a more sustainable, sustainable model that can withstand future crises and really gets at understanding the needs of people, our Canadians who require access to care. But it will only happen if there is strong governance behind it, so leadership model that really strengthens this and the involvement of all stakeholders, primarily patients, driving this change forward. And that's what we've really seen. I mean, when you think about it, Ahmad, it's not been politicians that have changed this. It's the public speaking out and demanding uh, better service. Um, so in a sense, we really don't have a choice here, do we? We have to fix this. I mean, have we gone too far not to? 
I don't think we've gone too far not to. I think our system has shown itself to be a very resilient one. But in order for it to continue to be resilient and stand strong in the future crisis of the economy and the way that the shortages of staff is happening, it really will need to make concrete efforts now and looking more at structural level uh, issues rather than minute things. So making sure that the money that we're dedicating to our health system is really getting at addressing larger things around how do we keep our healthcare providers within the system? How do we ensure that they have the support they need so they're not quitting on us and there becomes a shortage of staff? How do we, we look at elderly care in a different model so that it's not left to private sector to manage? Those are key structural issues where the money should be invested to lead to bigger reform. Uh, obviously, there's uh, some major uh, issues, as you pointed to. One is the backlog that was created from uh, the global pandemic, and other, this the simply, uh, simple shortage of, of healthcare staff, doctors, nurses, long-term care, PSWs, what have you. Uh, is this going to address those issues specifically? Well, that's the hope. I mean, that's what they're claiming, is that this increased funding or dedicated funding will do. However, in reality, we know that that will only happen if we really look at our healthcare workforce and think carefully and creatively about how to utilize existing resources. And what I mean by that is we have a surplus of uh, internationally medical graduates who are currently residing in Canada who don't have access to clinical practice. We also have physician assistants who are not able to practice across the country. Those are existing resources that we could easily deploy and really try to fix the shortage and the backlog of services. Um, have we moved past the discussion of comparing our system to the U.S. system? Have we moved past the discussion of it being private versus public uh, and, and the solution being somewhere in the middle? Because it, it seems that there's those that just want more money back to the 50%, 50-50 commitment from uh, provinces and, and feds to, to pour the money back into the old system. That'll make it work. And then others are saying reform. Um, How do you balance it? Well, that's a really good point, Scott. And I think that it's important to highlight here is that when we ask Canadians what they value the most, they tell you that they value their Canadian, their social Canadian healthcare system. The people do not want to pay with their credit cards for their healthcare in Canada. They want to pay with their health cards. And, you know, having financial, when you, when you start talking about a private system, you worry that that becomes a financial burden for the millions of Canadians who cannot afford healthcare otherwise who don't have access to an employer-based insurance programs, who really rely on our Canadian social system to access care for themselves and their loved ones. So when we talk about reform here, we're really talking about how do we take the challenges that is very clear within our Canadian healthcare system and how do we tackle those challenges one thing at a time? How do we make sure that our money that's being invested in the system is leading the biggest outcomes or the best uh, results for our Canadians? And one way to do it is to really get at the challenges that have presented themselves during COVID. Things around the shortage of our healthcare providers, the lack of family doctors, people still don't have access to family doctors across the country. This backlog of surgical and diagnostic things that can lead to higher rates of cancer. But also, most importantly, how do we make sure that our elderly and most vulnerable population have access to care that they deserve and should have in our country? And one way to do it is to make sure that the funding is going to best evidence results of how to implement those resources. Hmm. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, where we are in fixing Canada's healthcare system. As always, Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're most welcome. Have a great weekend. 
All right, we've been talking uh, a lot uh, post-pandemic or the last six months or so about prices, inflation, uh, cost of living, uh, interest rates going up. Uh, you know the story. And uh, the major grocery chains are certainly taking a brunt of this. Uh, during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, people were buying more food and such and uh, cooking at home. And, and, and profits were up for uh, the major grocery chains. Many uh, are now accusing them of gouging in some way, uh, taking advantage of the situation in a post-pandemic world. They say that's not the case. Are there some out there, some industries that are doing well and taking advantage of this, or is this hitting everybody right the way across the board, no matter what it is that you're doing? Uh, to talk more about all of this, uh, Waleed Hajazi is with, with us, Professor of Economic Analysis, Policy, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. And with us now, Waleed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. I hope you're well as well. So far, thanks so much. Uh, so your thoughts, the, the criticism that's been directed towards, we'll start with the grocery chains because that's been getting all the news. Is that warranted? Um, is, is it a valid uh, charge that they are taking advantage or gouging us during this, uh, during this difficult time? Yeah, this is one of the big problems with inflation. Inflation is very bad for so many people. But once you get into an inflationary period, we get used to rising prices. And it's hard for us to identify whether a particular store is gouging or whether that's just the general inflation. So I think when you look at the profits of the industry, what that tells you is they are exploiting the situation. They're raising their prices more than is justified by the cost pressures that they're facing. So these uh, accusations directed towards large grocery chains are warranted then, in your, in your opinion? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is that, you know, their mandate is to maximize profitability. And, yeah. you know, they're going to set the price as much as people are willing to pay. And as I say, you know, if you know how much a bag of milk costs, you pay that regular amount. And if one store raises the price, you go to another store. But in this period when inflation and prices are going up, it's hard for people to understand. So uh, businesses, grocery stores are taking advantage of the situation and raising prices more than they, they can attribute it to just their cost pressures. They're adding a bit of extra margin and that's why their profits are way up. Yes. We remember prior to uh, the holiday, uh, Loblaws announced they were freezing prices right the way through till the end of January. That drew a lot of attention to them, with some saying, well, what are you all doing it? Is this not price fixing or such? Did that end up drawing more attention to them by saying, well, we're going to have a sale through this period of time, and then what happens when it's over? Yeah, I think really what it showed is what a great company could do if they really wanted to. And so, for example, to hold the prices, you know, and there's a lot of vulnerable Canadians out there where the inflation is really, really hurting. So I think really what that does show is like a great company like Loblaws, which does a lot of great things. You know, what they could do if they really, really wanted to is to freeze those prices and lots of customers appreciate it. But once that disappears and you experience this big price inflation, all of that loyalty goes away. Uh, we've certainly seen in Loblaw's announcements, Galen Weston uh, front and center, sort of the spokesperson for them. Is 
that necessarily the best policy in times like this because that becomes the target? Yeah, you know, and, and you know, whenever you're like the biggest player, the most prominent player, you're going to take a lot of the heat and a lot of the attention. But this is economy wide. So economy wide businesses and the business model itself um, drives businesses to charge as much as they can and get as much as they can from the customer. So perhaps it's unfair, Scott, but I think the onus has to be on us, the consumer, and not to allow companies to gouge or to raise as much as they otherwise would by just basically saying, we're not going to go to those stores. But that requires us to do our homework and see who's raising prices more than is justified by cost and go to those other stores that are offering a deal. That would discipline retailers. Are there businesses, uh, sectors out there that necessarily didn't feel the heat or the hit that other industries did, um, therefore not necessarily uh, losing or lost a lot of money during that period, but are now taking advantage of raising prices just because everybody thinks everything's going up. So it's just uh, supply chain, everything's going up. It's just the way it is. Yeah. The the other big, really big issue is if you think about how much thought somebody puts into making a purchase. So when you think about groceries, you know, you go out, you go to the grocery store, you got to get some milk and some protein, some meat, some chicken. And so you're just getting all of that. There's probably less research that goes into that and therefore a lot more opportunity for the retailer to juice the deal, to charge a little bit more than maybe they should, well, they're trying to maximize profits, but more than is justified by the increases in their costs. In other sectors where people are putting more thought, so for example, you think about durable goods, furniture, refrigerators, even cars, then people are spending a lot more time, if they could find the product, a lot more time uh, trying to find the best price. And that, those are the sectors where you're not seeing as much of this profit or gouging, as we want to call it because the retailers are more disciplined because consumers are spending a lot more time researching where the best deal is. You don't see that in groceries because it's such a frequent purchase and it's typically not a mm-hmm. big purchase. And so people just go in and buy without necessarily doing that research across stores. Will we see this pendulum swing back? Will there be, there be a correction? And many times people say, well, it goes up, but it never comes down as much as it went up. Um, so do you see this? It, it, will the, when I guess supply chain issues are resolved the next year or two, where, where do you see this going? Yeah, so all of the predictions are in the third or fourth quarter, so later this year. So by this time next year, we'll be back to a world where inflation, this is what leads prediction, but we'll be back to a world where inflation will be in that two to 3% range. And therefore the ability of retailers and companies to raise prices, that ability will go away because people will become accustomed once again to low and stable inflation. They'll know what the prices are. So that when they go to the grocery store and see the price of chicken or the price of milk seems way out of whack from what they're used to buying from two weeks ago, people won't believe it and they won't buy it and they'll go to the other store. So we have to get inflation back down so people put into their psyche. Prices are stable. They're not growing like crazy. So when you see a price that and you get sticker shock, people are going to say, well, I'm not going to buy it. It's too too high and they're going to go to another store. That will discipline retailers even in the grocery industry. 
Uh, at what point do retailers start attacking each other this way as opposed to rowing in the same direction like they seem to be now? Yeah, what that what a fantastic question. And, you know, one of the great things about the free market economy, that's a great <laughs> question, Scott. I love that question. The free market economy is companies competing with one, of not, one another to keep prices low to attract customers. But when you're in, in a period of high inflation, they don't have to compete with one another as much. What they then do is they just start raising prices. And that's why we're seeing their profits go up so much because the focus is no longer on the competitor per se. The focus is say, let's just get as much as we can from the consumer. That's the market economy. The market economy works perfectly when inflation is low and stable because these companies are competing against one another. But when you're in this high inflation period, the focus switches from the competitor towards the customer and the customer loses and the retailers, the businesses win. So we have to get back to low and stable inflation and hopefully we'll be there by the end of this year. Waleed Hijazi with us, Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, uh, inflation and uh, price gouging uh, in a post-pandemic world. Thank you so much for the time, Waleed. Have a great weekend. You too. My pleasure. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have seen and heard of Ukrainian refugees coming here, Hamiltonians opening the doors and helping out in any way that they can, including at the YWCA in Hamilton. Let's bring in Tareem Zafar, our, uh, the manager of immigrant and settlement services for the YWCA and with us now. Tareem, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm perfectly well. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. So what's life been like at the YWCA in the last year since this all happened? How has it changed life there? Yeah, it was a sudden change. It was something unexpected for sure. But um, yeah, it's been busy. I can say it's it's been busy and uh, something we were not prepared for. But I can say that... uh, the staff, they they just took it and then um, they were there anytime, 24 hours a day. And they were connected with other community partners to make sure that our Ukrainian friends feel welcome. And we take the load. We don't overwhelm them figuring out things. We were working together. It was a, like it was a unanimous effort from the community and from the settlement agencies. So. It's chaotic, but uh, it's it's getting sorted out, and uh, they are getting the help that they need. Of course, not to the extent they expect. Um, it, there are there are a lot of things that still needs to be figured out, but but they know that we are there. We as uh, as the we are there. Yeah. Obviously, it's been a year since this all happened. When did you start to see people arrive, Tareem? When did you notice? My, we've got to start working here. Yeah, we started noticing like Hamilton was, I don't know like how Hamilton got into their books, but Hamilton was, I think, one of the first places they they planned to settle in. So uh, even before they arrived, we started seeing requests through the Facebook groups, through uh, social media. They they were sending requests that they want to come. How can uh, they have been approved and all that? So it was, I think, around April. So it started in March, but around April, we started seeing requests. And, and then what, we started people coming in by maybe May, I would say. And what specifically, what role, how does the YWCA fit into this? How, how, how What were you doing? How did you liaison through all of this? 
For sure. Uh, so we, we do provide wraparound services that includes employment, um, do the social connections and community connections for them. Uh, we have settlement, which is a huge uh, part of this uh, um, Ukrainian arrival effort. So uh, they, the settlement counselors do everything from uh, helping them finding a house. As you know, that when they come, they just live, uh, they have two weeks to uh, find a permanent housing. Uh, government only mm -hmm. gives them two weeks to stay in hotels. So uh, settlement counselors help them finding housing, helping them getting their kids enrolled in the schools. We are seeing some special needs kids, so they advocate for them to get the resources that they uh, deserve. And then there are other things. I, we see a lot of uh, uh, Ukrainians with professional degrees and diplomas, and they want to start working. They are very realistic. They know they don't have much support, and they need to get uh, started on employment uh, right away. So they are approaching us. We have a huge employment department that includes trades and skills, uh, uh, employment networking, job fairs and all that. So we make sure that uh, we match them with the employers who are welcoming to them. I know there are some employers who need some degrees, diplomas verified by some certain agencies. That's not possible for Ukrainians at this point. So, but some employers have opened their doors for them. So um, they are getting there. And I, I wanted to share a story with you uh, here if you have a couple of minutes. So yeah, um, we saw a client who came to us and she needed help. And our staff was there for her and they, they made sure that she has all the settlement support and all that. And I am proud to say today she is working with us as a settlement counselor for Ukrainian uh, uh, people. So she's one of the Ukrainians who first got help through the YWCA. And today she is working as a settlement counselor helping others. So that, that gives us hope, right? That's an that's an amazing story. When this first started, many talked about going back home. Is that still the thought, or have they convinced that no, we're just going to stay here? Yes, uh, that's a new trend that we are seeing. Now they are inquiring us about how they can uh, uh, they can uh, extend their stay as a resident. So there are many inquiries. They want to make it uh, their home. So they want to get uh, permanent status through. Uh, permanent residency or any other thing so they're very eager to do that it's it's different mm. than in the beginning when they were like why we are here and how long we have to hear they wanted to go back but most of them now they feel um, i think they, they saw how welcoming the canadians are and how community is willing to support them so um it's a change that i would say they would um, some of them or i would say at least half of them would like to stay Wow, some great stories there, Tareem. Yeah, uh, Tareem Zafar yeah, with us. They are asking um, us to find some lawyers for them, immigration lawyers for them, where they can get the information. And Scott, I would like to take the opportunity uh, through your platform to uh, let my Ukrainian friends know there is there are many misinformation pieces going around. Um, uh, for example, we heard from someone that don't go to the English classes for more than six months, then you will not get the uh, residency status in Canada. Mm. So there are so many false things going around. So please make mm. sure they go to the official channels to verify before they act on that. And of course, YWCA Hamilton website to find out more. Tareem yeah. Safar with okay. us, Manager of Immigrant and Settlement Services for the YWCA and how they are helping Ukrainian re uh, refugees here in Hamilton. Tareem, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Congratulations. Great work. Yeah, thank you. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've been talking at length uh, one year since Russia invasion of Ukraine uh, and not only the military angle, the political angle, but also here in the city and 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 how Ukrainians have arrived here and, and what Hamiltonians have done to open up their homes and hearts to uh, people who need help. Here's a, an interesting story of a Ukrainian refugee uh, who, when they arrived in Canada, started uh, to TikTok to share his thoughts on the invasion of Ukraine by Russia being a refugee and what it's like now to be here living in Canada. Uh, let's introduce you to uh, Simeon, Ukraine, Simeon, who is a Ukrainian refugee and TikToker at New Canadians and is with us now. Simeon, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yep, I'm well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So tell us about your story, your arrival here, how, how this all got started. Well, it's obviously a sad story, but uh, and and uh, today is the probably a good day to reflect the, this whole year. But uh, it, it was a story where we just wake, woke up and left the home, thought that it's going to be we will be back in few weeks probably. And till this day, I never went back to my apartment, my condo, and st- still traveling. So yeah, just took uh, whatever was most necessary for me, my wife, our four kids and and the dog, and just left everything behind. When did you arrive in Canada? Where did you arrive? Uh, well, it was uh, in April. So in a few months, we just uh, stayed, uh, first few months we stayed in Poland and then decided to settle somewhere where we will at least have no issues with the language barrier. So we chose Mm. Canada. Now, do you plan to go back? As as you said, initially, you thought you'd be out for a few weeks, months, whatever, then go back. Or or have you just now focused on settling here and your family? It's a a very common and difficult question to answer. And uh, our answers were changing every month since we uh, came here but at this point we just uh, i've been talking to my wife just recently about this and and uh, at this point it just seems like changing everything again for our kids going to be as traumatic as it was initially because they already have friends here they have school and you know take them again somewhere else that be again stressful time but uh, being Ukrainian, we just uh, decided not to plan for the future because <laughs> it's, it's apparently doesn't make mm. any sense because anything can happen to you the next day. Wow. Um, how old are your kids? How are they doing? So they're uh, all that's that's a tricky one. OK, so it's uh, I know that's 14. a terrible <laughs> question from one father to ask another father, because I'm not sure I could answer my yeah, own. Why you do this to me? So it's a 14, 10, 9 and a 6. Oh, yeah, they, they actually doing really good uh, for the oldest one. It was uh, kind of stressful because she understands what is going right. on and she did lost her friends. But everyone else is like, you know, uh, you have one friend, then next day everyone uh, you, you have new friends and, and you're okay with that. But for, for the oldest one, we, she, she kind of still goes through this, uh, difficult yeah. process because it's her, uh, 14, you know, that's a yeah. difficult year and, and mm-hmm. then losing everything and it's all together at one time. 
So, but overall, yeah, uh, everyone is very welcoming towards our family and especially kids. And they they found new friends like in a few days after we came here and every, every single person, we know their parents and everyone is very nice to, to, to us. So it's, it's a blessing. That is so great to hear. So um, meeting, are you getting a chance to meet other Ukrainians who are in the same situation you are? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's it's bittersweet. It's unfortunate, but also fortunate to, yeah. to meet someone. Uh, yeah, we we always like every other week we uh, meet a new family. Uh, uh, usually, it's a part of the family because, uh, as you might know, the male population cannot leave unless you right, have like right. a lot of kids or disabled kids or something like special. Uh, situation so usually it's just mothers and kids and uh, yeah we again Ukrainian community uh, the one that started to come here after the war is just trying to uh, stay together help each other I just few weeks ago I, I helped move uh, like we were moving furnitures, driving a lot and helping new family to settle in in this area. So it's it's an ongoing process. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, stopping. People are still coming because mm. the war is still yeah. going on, unfortunately. How did you get the how did you get started with a TikTok? Tell us about that. Yeah, that's weird. That's really weird. <laughs> it was just uh, for fun. Actually, it, it is for for as for anyone probably who is kind of successful on TikTok during pandemic. A lot of people started doing that just for fun and ended up being like really famous. So it's it's kind of the same story. I just uh, thought that I, I told my wife, you know, I'm going to start TikTok just to practice my English because I want to uh, be better at it. And the very first video I uploaded it, people just started to subscribe, asking questions, supporting, and specifically like 99% of my comments were, which was like, uh, you know, thousands of comments. They were all very supportive and very welcoming. It was, you know, we we were crying reading those comments because mm. people were like, well, what can we do? What, how can we help? We are so happy that you are here. It was overwhelming. And that's what, you know, pushed us, uh, pushed me to keep doing that and just, uh, you know, record, record my uh, observations of living in the completely new culture, completely new part of the world. Simeon, uh, an incredible story. Good luck. Congratulations to you. Obviously, very, very courageous and doing the right thing for your family. And, and, and you. now at a conflict going back and forth, what do you do the future? Four kids, my goodness, I couldn't even imagine. Uh, but thank you for sharing the story. Thank it you. drives everything home for us. Good luck with the TikTok and good luck to you and your family, uh, whether you stay thank here you. or not. We'd love to have you. Oh, and by the way, your English is great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. You too, Simeon. Thanks for the time, and good luck to you. This guy knows everything uh, about everything tech, which is why we're bringing him in to talk about TikTok, because my kids are absolutely devastated that this gem of an app could be ripped from their little paws, or maybe not. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Those are good to be here. Your kids should be talking to my kids because they're also pretty uh, pretty upset. Whenever I mention that, you know, TikTok may go dark here, they're like, no. So, yeah, our kids in the Levy household. They, they, well, my kids are accusing me of fear mongering. You know, Dad, you're just an old guy. You're this, that, and that. But you're a technology expert, man. So how can they question you? Well, see, that's the thing is, is there are really two sides to the to the TikTok story. There's the side that, oh, it's just an app that we use to watch videos of, you know, people dancing and viral videos and all sorts of things, the things that we talk about at school. From that perspective, through the eyes of the average demographic, the average user who is fairly young, uh, they don't recognize it as, as anything but a benign app that, you know, they use on their phone, whereas the back end of it is kind of terrifying it grabs a lot of data, much more data from your device than an equivalent social media app like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And then it sends it back to the company that owns it, which is based in China. And yes, that has a whole lot of other implications because we don't know where that data goes and who has access to it. And it could go could all the way up to the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China. So, you know, you know, two concerns here. The kids don't see it because they just want to share their videos. Uh, but everyone else is like, oh, my God, this app is a major security risk. And we are hearing governments from the U.S. to India to the European Union and now Canada. They're saying we've got to look more closely at this because this does pose some very serious individual and cross-country uh, security risks if this continues as is. This isn't new, Carmi. I think you and I have talked about this in the past that, you know, there were some concerns about TikTok and its affiliation with China and such. But now we're hearing about it quite a bit. As you mentioned, government's getting involved. Why is this heating up now? And is all of this attention obviously worth it? I think part of it is, 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 you know, because we sort of had a few years of sort of looking at it through the, you know, you know, almost at the periphery, thinking "Mm, this is a problem. We should get to it. Let's let's do our due diligence. Well, we've done the due diligence, and now it's time for official investigation. So now you're starting to see uh, U.S. House of Representatives banning it on their devices. Uh, you know, um, uh, Marco Rubio introducing legislation to ban it outright in the U.S. The European Union uh, banning it from any uh, devices of government uh, members. Uh, individual states in the U.S. doing the same thing. And now the sort of the latest shoe to drop is uh, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada is partnering with provincial privacy commissioners in Quebec, British Columbia, and Alberta to launch a similar investigation. So now you're starting to see official government agencies around the world act on these suspicions that we've been talking about for a number of years. And so it's suddenly becoming very real. The company denies that that any of this is an issue, but at the same time, it's hard to deny the architecture of the app, that the fact that we can track where all of the data that's being pulled off much worse than equivalent apps, um, and that we don't have real answers about what happens to it afterwards. So, yeah, it bears investigation, and now we're finally seeing that move forward. So is there a fix for this, Carmi? Can they make it all better so this problem goes away and the kids are all happy, or is this just another Huawei waiting to happen and soon will be a dodo bird? I fear it's the latter, simply because the you know the 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 eight hundred pound gorilla in the room is the fact that it's owned by a Chinese company known as ByteDance, and so as long as the company is Chinese owned, there's always the risk that that data ends up in places where we don't want it to go. So you know, a couple of years ago, when he was president, Donald Trump tried to get, um, tried to force TikTok to sell itself to an American company, which would allow it to you know sever the business relationship with ByteDance 
and also ensure that the data does not leave the continental, continental United States. Uh, that failed. Walmart stepped forward, but ultimately uh, there were a number of court challenges and that, that deal failed. Uh, and so as long as it's owned uh, by a Chinese entity, uh, this is going to continue. And, and as a result, the only real answer from a personal perspective is delete the app from your phone. Just don't use it anymore. But as you know, because you're running into the same problem that I am with, with your kids and my kids, uh, they will have none of it because nobody wants to be outside of TikTok land. Can't miss those videos. No, it's like they're addicted to this now. So are they already stealing? Is it too late for this? Because this is already woven into the kids' society. Yeah. Oh, I'm certain that that data is already flowing. Company denies it, uh, you know, six ways from Sunday, but it's pretty clear uh, that once it goes over the the Great Firewall into China, that uh, that we, you and I, uh, both as individuals and the Canadian government, uh, have no control over where it ends up. And so, you know, we've seen this before. TikTok has made claims about how it protects the integrity of data. Um, it makes claims about what it can and cannot see, what it can and cannot share. And then we've seen subsequent reports that show the company's been lying. So um, there's no way to trust this organization. Uh, and quite frankly, there's no way to trust any other Chinese tech company. Same deal with Huawei. We saw that play out with Huawei. You can't trust having their hardware on our cell phone networks, on our wireless towers. In much the same way, we probably can't trust uh, uh, the TikTok app on our or our kids' phones. And the bigger worry here is that there are kids. They're especially sensitive to these issues. Um, uh, it's one thing for me to install an app on my phone, quite another for, for my kid to be exposed in a very similar manner. And as a parent, that worries me even more. So clearly, uh, this has infected our kids. Our kids are addicted to this. And like you said, they're not letting it go anytime soon. Is there a company out there ready to pick up the audience, the users that TikTok has once they are banned? Is there an American company that, hey, kids, I know your TikTok's gone, but this is better? The only real competitor of any kind of scale uh, that, that I can see is YouTube, which, of course, is owned by Google, which is owned by Alphabet. Uh, because they were the original video platform. They were the original viral video uh, uh, app and service before TikTok came along. And, you know, what, what's different here is that, um, you know, YouTube started off as a, as a web-based tool, um, whereas TikTok started off as a mobile-based tool. And that's sort of why the younger generation has really taken to it. Uh, YouTube has been introducing a number of features in recent years to make itself more TikTok-like, to be more viral, uh, to be cooler, um, and so if anyone can pull it off, if anyone can appeal, make themselves appeal to that younger demographic in the absence of TikTok, if it does eventually get banned, I would say it's YouTube. And if you, you know, as a parent, uh, that's uh, something I'm introducing into conversation is making sure that if my kids are watching videos that, uh, you know, they lean toward YouTube away from TikTok, if at all possible, because eventually you may not have a choice. Uh, we've saw what happened to Huawei, and uh, although reluctantly we eventually did ban them, I think the companies already went on their way without them, the, the other companies that were going to replace mm -hmm. the 5G. Um, are we going to say the same thing here? Where do you see this going? Uh, I think this could very well uh, end up in a bit of a showdown, and not just a technological showdown between um, various governments and a Chinese tech company, but between various governments and the government of China over global technology, tech, uh, global technology and apps. Um, and so I think this is a potential flashpoint with China. And I think it's something that um, it isn't just a technology question anymore. Increasingly, statecraft is done 
through apps and electronic platforms and networks. Uh, and I think China as a country has succeeded very well in getting Western kids addicted to a service and hmm. then using it to harvest data from their devices. It's actually, uh, you know, if I, if I were writing a James Bond novel, I'd probably write it about this. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Fascinating story. TikTok being investigated. Where is it going to go? Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Appreciate it, Scott. You too. All right. As we've been chatting all day, it's the one year. I don't even want to say anniversary simply because and when I think of anniversary, I think of celebration. Um, we are marking the one year mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Are Canadians losing interest? Are we still? And, you know, you, you heard we've had a couple of Ukrainian families on that, that came within the last six months. They can't believe the hospitality. They can't believe how they've been welcomed. Um, some initially wanted to go back. Now the kids want to stay. Um, what about Canadians here? How are we feeling? Daryl Berker is with us, president of Ipsos, and with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So where are we now? I mean, obviously, Canadians very concerned about this since day one. Uh, do we still care? Are we still concerned about what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah, we are, but we're slightly less focused on it. Um, so when we first started asking this around the time the war started, like how close attention are you paying uh, to what's going on? 74% of Canadians said that uh, that they were paying close attention. That's numbers down to 58. So there's other issues that have uh, emerged since um, what's happened in Ukraine that have started to pick away at some of our attention. So is this, or would this, Daryl, have anything to do with the fact that maybe it's sort of at a stalemate? Nothing has changed. It's the same thing every day. It's just more um, grinding out of a war and, and no real progress on either side. I think you've said it very well. I think that, uh, you know, what these data show is that uh, as things aren't changing very much in the war, uh, that people are losing interest. There's less new information to pay attention to. So I think we're seeing that. But then we're also seeing people who are really focused on what's happening in their own personal lives right now, turning their eyes back to their own, particularly economic situation and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more focused on that. So domestic issues at home, inflation, affordability, all of that is still our main attention, obviously. Yeah, it's funny. They've got this term out there that you probably have heard a few times, the poly crisis. Like there's uh, COVID has been replaced by all of these different things that are now affecting uh, public opinion. But the truth is that what you see is that it's an overwhelming focus on on uh, on inflation and uh, inflation in, in real people's uh, words is basically the cost of living. So here we are one year out uh, as of today. Does this rejuvenate interest? Um, many thought that they would see some sort of winter or spring resurgence by Russia. Uh, it looks like we may be at a turning point. Do you think Canadians will react differently to that? Yeah, I think uh, the, what uh, uh, we've seen is that, you know, as it moves up the agenda and it starts to, you know, lead the news again, the Canadians do get more focused. Not that they don't care. It's just that, as you said before, things have kind of settled in and they've factored it in. So I think maybe the anniversary might uh, uh, perk things up. But unless something changes, uh, it's going to go back down to where we saw it, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago where people are saying, you know, I'm a little more focused on other things right now. Do you see the pendulum shifting so far that people are, are you know, what I, i'm having such a difficult time here at home i don't have time to think about ukraine will we get there um a little bit of that but the other part that we're really seeing jump out of the numbers and the biggest change we've seen other than people not uh saying that they're paying as much attention is the degree to which they believe that canada has an obligation 
to uh, support or go in and fight on behalf of other NATO countries. And those numbers have actually plummeted. They're down almost 20% since we started asking this around the time that the, the war started. Still a majority, 63% saying, yeah, we do have a responsibility to do this. But that's certainly a lot lower than we saw last February. Uh, do you anticipate anything changing over the six months or does that, or the next six months, or does that really rely on what direction this war goes in? Well, I think you said it very well. I think uh, events on the battlefield and what people see coming out of the war do have an influence. As I said before, you know, half of Canadians are actually, you know, just over half, 58%, say that they're paying pretty close attention to that. They start talking to their neighbors and telling them they should be paying attention. Uh, then you'll probably see those numbers go up. Hmm. Daryl Bricker with us, president of Ipsos, one year into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and where are the minds of Canadians? Daryl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Liz Russell for producing. Also, uh, Tom McKay on the board and Dave Woodard in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word. I'm asking if you could please take the snow off the roof of your vehicles. The reason why I'm asking is I'm in the windshield business and I've seen numerous of times today windshields getting broken by glass and being smashed by ice on the vehicles. Please. It's against the law as well to have snow or ice on the roof of your car. Thank you. 